Green Street Radio is a production of Grassroots Environmental Education. Learn more about us and our programs at www.grassrootsinfo.org or follow us on Facebook at Grassroots Info and on Twitter at Grassroots E-N-V-E-D. Welcome to Green Street, a project of Grassroots Environmental Education. I'm your host, Patty Wood, here with my co-host, Doug. Those of you who grew up in the 1970s might remember the brouhaha that erupted after it was discovered that a flame-retardant chemical called Tris, used to manufacture children's sleepwear, turned out to cause cancer. On this edition of Green Street, we're fortunate to have as our guest the woman who is primarily responsible for that action, Dr. Arlene Blum. Dr. Blum is the founder and executive director of the Green Science Policy Institute. She holds a doctorate in biophysical chemistry and has taught at Stanford University, Wellesley College, and UC Berkeley, where, as we said, her research was instrumental in banning cancer-causing chemicals. We asked her to tell our audience a little about her work. Here's our interview. So, Dr. Bloom, let's start at the beginning. You're obviously a scientist by training. What is it that led you into the world of environmental toxins? Well, I'm actually also a Himalayan mountain climber. I was going to mention, I was saving that for, but go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of connections. Yeah. Working on chemistry, environmental toxins is just like climbing the world's most challenging mountains. Mm. Um, So this happened years ago when a friend uh, who was an early environmentalist died climbing, and I decided I wanted to do something that made a difference for the environment. Um, and heard about this flame retardant tris that was in all the children's pajamas in the country. That was a long time ago. Um, and I tested it to see um, if it came out and discovered that when you put children in tris pajamas who hadn't worn it before, the next morning you found tris breakdown products in their urine. Mm. So people don't think of the fact that chemicals, maybe your listeners know this, but other people don't, that chemicals you know, that are in your cosmetics or your clothing can end up in your body just the same as if they're in your breakfast cereal. Mm. So anyway, Tris went into children, and we tested it, found it was a mutagen, a carcinogen, wrote a big lead article for Science Magazine, and in those days, three months later, Tris was out of kids' pajamas. Wow. The good, I hate to say the good old days, but Boy, that, think, that sounds things so, don't happen that fast sounds anymore. Sounds so easy, Arlene. <laughs> Well, we, we struggled for so long. But it happened. And then, you know, that chemical, brominated tris, was banned, but the immediate replacement was something called chlorinated tris that was almost identical, with just one molecule different. And we did some more research, and then chlorinated tris was out of kids' pajamas. And, uh, so, so, and I guess the interesting thing is then I took a long break from science to raise a family, do all kinds of other things, uh, came back just a few years ago and discovered that the same chlorinated tris that our work had helped get out of kids' pajamas in the 70s was back today at high levels in our furniture and in things like nursing pillows and baby products. Can you believe? So they are you saying that they just banned it for sleepwear and they allowed it on the market for everything else? Absolutely. Oh. And it's, it's, um, we just have a new study of, of baby products, and we're just getting started, but it looks like about a quarter of the baby products containing foam that meet this California standard I'll tell you about, but that, that are really used across the country today contain the same chlorinated drift that was taken out of kids' pajamas. Okay. So very sad. Yeah, it is very sad. I mean, it, it's hard to, uh, you know, to get a, a chemical off the market um, that's making a lot of money for the chemical company. 
and you know they've you know they've already convinced a lot of their uh, their clients um, that you know this is something that's uh, you know that's useful, and you know it uh, it's going to meet government regulations and might be cheap even you know that might be another selling um, selling. Uh, point for them. But let's just orient our audience um, right now uh, for this discussion today. And what exactly are brominated flame retardants? And uh, where uh, where are they found in our homes? Okay. And it's actually brominated and chlorinated. They're they're right. I, I just learned that from you. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah. So in the, you know, so but both of them, or you could you could call them halogenated if you want. Bromine and chlorine are both halogens. Okay. Could you just call say halogenated? Halogenated flame retardants. Okay. Yeah. Good. Um, so the the, the places uh, that that I think are of greatest concern are um, in foam, in our furniture, and in our baby products, and also in the plastic around electronics. And um, interestingly enough, these, these are the places, uh, th- these chemicals are semi-volatile. That means they come out. And uh-huh. so people think, oh, if they put, they have a leather couch, it's okay. But it comes out through leather. It comes out through plastic. They come out. And they end up in dust. And from the dust, they end up in people and animals. And um, there, there are lots of them in our homes, very high levels, to make your couch flame retardant. by weight of the foam could be one of these chemicals. So you might have pounds of chlorinated tris in your house or one one of the other related chemicals. Wow. And just to say why there's such a worry is these chemicals are pretty much in the same family or in some cases the same as the really bad pesticides that were removed in the 80s. Remember in the 80s, we had DDT, Aldrin, Aldrin, all those bad pesticides that were banned by the Stockholm Convention. Right. These were our organochlorine pesticides. Organochlorine, exactly. Right. Uh Uh-huh. Like one was called Mirex. Mm -hmm. Anyway, these flame retardants are, in some cases, identical or in the same family. So Mirex is identical to a flame retardant called dechlorine. And actually, we don't have dechlorine now, but we have dechlorine plus, which is almost like dechlorine. But these, these halogenated flame retardants are, are, are really similar in structure to the really bad pesticides. Now, so just, just to give you a really vivid analogy is by eating organic, we avoid um, pesticides, which is good, and we help protect farm workers in the environment, which is very good. Uh, but the amount of pesticide we're avoiding is a very small amount, and it's not that bad a pesticide because the really bad ones were banned in the 80s, those ones we just talked about. Right. Um, but so while we're eating organic and avoiding a few milligrams of a not-so-bad pesticide, we will go into our living room where we may have a pound or two of something that's almost the same as the really bad ba- banned pesticides. Now, Tell me the relationship between a pesticide, which is designed to kill an insect or a weed or um, whatever, and and how does that how does that also make and make it a good flame retardant? Well, I mean, it turns out that both uh, these, or, as you said, they were organochlorine pesticides. Yeah. Organochlorine means you have chlorine bonded to carbon. Um, organochlorine or organobromine are very similar. 
So like the tris that we talked about in the beginning, uh-huh. that's an organochlorine or an organobromine. Okay. It's the same chemical family where you have bromine or chlorine bonded, bonded to carbon. And as I said, some like Mirax is the exact same thing, identical as the uh, flame retardant dechlorine. It's when you have this bromine or chlorine bounded to carbon, you have a, a molecule uh, of a sort that turns out to be persistent. It stays around for a long time. It tends to bioaccumulate, tends to be toxic. Toxic to insects, toxic to humans, animals, and ironically, that same kind of molecule is often a very good flame retardant. Okay. Well, that's that's very interesting information. <laughs> so that's why having and it's very interesting to hear. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going. It's very interesting to hear that you know that you know so much focus is on pesticides on our food supply and pesticides used pesticides used on our lawns and like you say they are not of that organochlorine um, class anymore they're organophosphates or they are even more likely synthetic pyrethroids um, which are I guess less at least less persistent um, in the environment than the other ones and yet we have now this um, kind of the same type of chemical, um, compound that's inside our homes that we're breathing every single day. If yeah, ju- actually, just to be really accurate, um, that breathing is not the, the way that they're usually absorbed. It's through ingestion. So they go into dust, and it's really hand-to-mouth content through dust. So, I mean, one of the ways people can reduce their exposure is kind of the same as for lead, you know, where you dust, you know, you wet mop and you vacuum with a HEPA filter and mm-hmm. you wash your hands a lot before you eat. I mean, that can all, all help to reduce exposure. You're listening to Green Street on WBAI and we're talking this morning with Dr. Arlene Bloom and we're talking about, this is not chemistry class, but boy, is it fascinating because this is all about chemistry. We're talking about halogenated flame retardant chemicals and how they get into your home. So was I correct to say that these are odorless and uh, practically invisible. I mean, you can't, you, you don't see these things, but they're no. in, they're in your dust, and and they're they're coming out of the housing of televisions. Is that yeah. right? How Among- does that happen? Because they're volatilizing. Well, the two primary locations are furniture foam, uh, baby product foam, and plastic enclosures, and they're called semi-volatile. Semi-volatile. So they don't. It's not like they just go into the air, but they, they do come out and they do end up, they attach to dust particles. So you, you can find, you know, relationships between the amount in your furniture, the amount in your dust, and then often the amount in you. So, so a HEPA-filtered vacuum cleaner would be helpful in reducing your exposure? We believe so. Nobody's really tested it, but it makes sense if it comes from dust, that it's the less dust you have in your house and the less dust you eat the, the better. Yeah, ingestion of dust is, is um, right now people get about um, 80% of their dose through dust and about 20% through food because it does, you know, make its way out into the atmosphere, into sewage, uh, sludge, get spread on the fields, and it, it's now starting to show up in our food supply, the, these um, organohalogen flame retardants. Mm. And you, you don't consider inhalation as, a, as an issue, even though we're breathing these things in that may be in, in our, our indoor or our, our home, the air I in our home. I believe it's heavy enough that it tends to mostly go into dust. Ah, That's okay. what the people who study indoor air tell me. Okay. Okay. 
That's really interesting. Yeah. Really, really Okay, so now we need to actually talk about um, the effects of these chemicals that we know we're being exposed to. Or, or you know, maybe let's uh, let's go back. Let's step one. Um, let's make one step backwards and just say. Um, we, we are finding them in our bodies where? And I, I know that we, there are a lot of studies showing that, that these chemicals are found in mother's milk. Um, but where else are they found in our well, bodies? They're called lipophilic, fat-loving. Mm-hmm. So they're found in, in uh, breast milk at high levels, but they find them in serum. So people who have their body burdens measured, they, they just take a blood sample. And in fact, my daughter, I, and 12 San Francisco firefighters are just having a body burden measured, and we'll have the result in a month or so on, on these chemicals and also their combustion products. Wow. Yeah, and I, and I guess just to say one of the really sad things is that these chemicals actually have not been shown to be effective in, in um, increasing fire safety. These, these home uses in furniture, baby products, and television consoles um, probably don't do anything for fire safety. They might, but it's a small enough effect that it really can't be measured. Um, and, and that's what's very sad. And, in fact, I, I'm working with firefighters, um, but, but when they burn, they produce high levels of dioxins. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're actually working with firefighters who are very concerned because they have very high levels of sorts of cancer that are related to dioxin and furan exposure. And so we're, we're, we're check, anyway, that's one of our research projects is to look at, at levels of the combustion products of the chemicals in firefighters. Because, you know, flame retardants don't really stop fires. They just pause them for seconds. And, and how well something works, I know this is too technical, but a flammability standard really depends on what the standard is. And um, I can give you the details if you want, but the standard that these chemicals are used to meet is, is, is not an effective standard. So mm. it doesn't, it does not save lives. You and mentioned so. cancer being one of the potential uh, health risks. What are some of the other things that we know about regarding these chemicals in human health, especially? For- yeah, actually, cancer is a big health risk from the combustion products. So the firefighters have very high levels of, of certain kinds of cancer that are related to the exposure. Uh, but in terms of the population, um, the results um, in animal studies are um, neurological impairments. Uh, so that's like hyperactivity, lessened IQ, uh, reproductive impairments. So that's um, longer time to pregnancy, um, smaller testicular volume, lower sperm count, um, various thyroid effects, endocrine effects. Um, there's uh, just a small number of studies linking the chemicals to obesity, um, very small number to diabetes. I've heard of one study linking them to asthma. Those are in animals. Um, but the really sad thing is we have maybe several hundred animal studies, but now, and I should just say that when, when I've um, brought those to the attention of, of the producers of the chemicals, they've said, well, you know, it's just animals. We want to see what's happening in babies. And the sad thing is we now have about 20 human health experiments. And not surprisingly and very sadly, um, we're seeing in humans the same effect as in animals. There's probably more data on these chemicals in humans than almost any, um, anything that's ever been studied just because they're at such high levels and they're so common. And, and so two of the really, really disturbing studies um, 
One is from here in California, a study showing that women uh, take, with high levels, uh, take twice as long to become pregnant. Um, and there, there are several studies showing um, alterations in, in male and female hormonal levels with the chemicals. And then there's a new study at Columbia showing that children with high levels um, have five to eight point lowered IQ, which is very, very disturbing and, and unfortunately in line with many animal studies. Well, especially when you're talking about dust and you're talking about kids' hand-to-mouth behavior, I can say, I think you mentioned lead before. I think it's, it's, a, it's a similar kind of, of situation that we've got here where we've got exposure magnified by behavioral uh, characteristics for, for children. They, you know, they live close to the ground. They're on the floor all the time. So it would seem like a, the, the, the problem would be magnified for them. And, of course, with their developing brains and neurological you know, things getting in the way. Absolutely. As it turns out, there are a number of studies now showing that children have three to four times the level of, of their parents, and that's that young children, and that's because the chemical goes through the placenta, uh, the baby gets it from breast milk, and then, as you said, the, 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 the final dose from, from hand-to-mouth contact. So, so, you know, I don't know how long we have, but I want to be sure to tell people how, if they don't live in California, how they can really avoid these chemicals. So yeah, let's sure no, we've got time for that. No. At the end, or I can tell you now if you want. No, we actually absolutely are going to talk about that. And in every show, we always talk about the the issue and then how we can um, we can best protect ourselves from it. But I'd like to just um, talk about why and um, and how these standards uh, were set in the U.S. Are you familiar with all of the legislation that went on so that we have these? Uh, these um, flame retardant standards and who was behind them and why um, these chemicals were identified as the, uh, um, you know, as our best solutions for them? Right. Well, I'm um, the founder, in addition to being a visiting scholar at UC Berkeley in chemistry, I'm the founder of the Green Science Policy Institute. Mm -hmm. And our mission is to bring good peer-reviewed science into policy decisions. And we've been very involved in um, working for increased fire safety without toxic chemicals, and we have, we're involved in a, in a lot of legislation. Um, in fact, just to say, if anybody wants to learn more about this, can I say what our website is? Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. We want you to. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's uh, just greensciencepolicy.org, no spaces. Um, and we're going to have a new one in a couple of weeks, but there's still quite a lot of information up there. So the story is um, California has a unique flammability standard, and it's the only place in the world with a standard like this, and it is unfortunately responsible for a vast part of these toxic chemicals in our home. Uh, the standard is called Technical Bulletin 117, TB117, and um, people can look at their furniture, the center cushion on their couch, and if it has a label that says it meets the requirements of the California Bureau of Home Furnishings, um, it sometimes says California standard, something about California on the center cushion. And it'll often say technical bulletin 117. That means that their furniture meets this standard. And it's a very peculiar standard because it is a standard for the flammability of foam, that foam will not burn for 12 seconds, but there's no requirement on fabric. So if you think of what happens if you drop a cigarette on your couch, uh, the fabric will burn first, and then a 12-second requirement for the foam really doesn't do much once the fabric is burning. 
And so there's a lot, in fact, I'm just completing a paper, believe it or not, tomorrow that documents many, many studies showing that this standard is not effective. Um, and, and it, you know, in a laboratory setting. And then the big picture is that California, who has had the standard since um, the late 70s, has no difference in fire death reduction during that period compared to all the other states that don't have the standard. So if it really made a big difference, um, you would see some additional fire safety in California, and you do not. Interesting. So every state would have their own standards on flammability. This is not a federal there, no other state has a standard. Well, there no you only go. California. It's a strange thing because we're the only, after our, the fire and earthquake, we, after the fire and earthquake, um, 1906, we founded this bureau in California, and we're the only state with a bureau, and we're the only state that can set flammability standards. Um, so the federal government is actually moving forward with a much better standard, which is a standard for fabric that is not met with chemicals that would actually um, prevent fires and would not lead to these toxic chemicals. So, so Penta, the chemical that's responsible for the IQ deficits in kids and the infertility, and the one that has you know, hundreds of animal studies and, and now 20 human studies, that chemical was exclusively used in North America and, and pretty much the only major use, 95%, apparently, you know, it seems... I'm not sure, but it was only used in North America, and it was, 95% was used in North America, and it was used in foam to meet the California Furniture Flammability Standard. Um, we are talking about where these chemicals are in our homes and what the health impacts of exposure to these chemicals is, and a little bit about the, uh, the, um, the laws. And I believe what you just told me was that California is responsible for this and that every every uh, furniture manufacturer in our country is actually making uh, furniture that meets this California standard so they can sell their their um, their products in that state. Is that correct? No, fortunately, that's not correct. Oh, good. Well, I love it. I, I got it all wrong. Tell me where I'm wrong. I'm not all wrong. Okay. Right in California. We in California have no choice except to buy furniture uh, that right. is good pretty much exclusively with organohalogens at high levels. Other states, um, it's not true. Uh, your furniture is not, though it's, um, so according to the foam industry and the furniture industry, only about 30% of the furniture in the country meets the California Furniture Flammability Standard. Okay, so, so it means that only those manufacturers that are actually meeting that standard, though, can sell their product in California. Yeah, but you okay, yeah. can have two lines. Of okay, you can have two lines, yeah. Okay. So it turns out that there are a few big manufacturers, um, like IKEA uses chlorinated trifts across the whole country, Penny's, Macy's. There are a few manufacturers like that um, and, and that do use it across the whole country, but a lot of furniture is heavy. There are lots of local manufacturers all the furniture made in Europe doesn't have it. Um, so, so there are options. And, and so for consumers who are not in California, just when you buy a couch by picking up the center cushion and seeing if it meets the California standard and just buying one that doesn't, you can do a huge amount for the health of your family. Hmm. So you do have a choice. Unfortunately for baby products, they make one line across the whole country. So what you said is sadly enough true for nursing pillows, strollers, baby carriers, changing pads. All of those products 
pretty much will have a, a tag saying they meet the California um, standards. And then that's a really, really sad place because um, there is no fire hazard from those products. Um, there's a letter from the Consumer Product Safety Commission saying there's no fire hazard. And um, I mean, when you ask about policy, California has been trying for four years um, to change their policy. So it's like what the federal government is doing, saying that they're going to be uh, a flammability standard for the fabric that can be met without toxic chemicals rather than this funny foam standard, which really doesn't do much for fires. And, and you know, every time there's a, there is such legislation that the manufacturers of the, of the, of the chemicals um, spend millions uh, on, on lobbying and uh, media um, you know, with, with uh, ads that the whole state's going to burn down. And, and um, so for three years, they have succeeded in, in stopping um, really good efforts to, to, to stop the requirement for these, that's well, not a, the virtual requirement for these chemicals in California. Yeah. Um, so, so if we are in our homes and we want to see whether or not we are being exposed, it's a pretty, it's a, it, it's pretty, good test to actually look at the label um, on, a, uh, on a, a sofa or, let's say, a, a, a comfortable chair that we have. And if we do not have that label with the um, California Technical Bulletin number 117 on it, um, then we can be pretty much assured that, it's, that it, the foam does not contain a flame retardant chemical? Yeah, you can't be sure, but it's highly unlikely. The chemicals cost money. Um, and, in fact, what we've found in testing a lot of furniture is about a third of the time you have the label, you actually don't have the chemicals because I think it's expensive. And so, sometimes, you know, not everybody actually puts it in. So okay. it seems unlikely if there's no label there'd be the chemical. You know, you can't, you can't guarantee right. it. Now, now um, you know, some people are, are, are very concerned about these types of exposures. And, for instance, with the EMFs, they, they've gone out and purchased an inexpensive um, gauss meter for their homes where they can tell, you know, how much, uh, you know, electromagnetic radiation is coming out of various appliances and so on. I saw on a video, um, I, I believe it was on, on your site, that you were actually – uh, you actually had a, um, you know, a, a piece of equipment that you were using to test whether or not um, cushions or other items had um, had this chemical in them. Is that, yeah, am so I, it's quite expensive. It's a very specialized piece of equipment. I don't own it. I had just bar- I borrow it from time to time. Right, um, but it actually does detect the chemical. Well, it tells you if there's uh, bromine or chlorine in it. It doesn't tell you what the exact chemical is. Uh-huh. To do that, you need a, a mass spec analysis. Um, actually, a, a scientist we're working with at UC Davis has developed something like a pregnancy test kit where you could take a little bit of foam from your couch, just a teeny, teeny drop, and you shake it in a vial with a chemical, and it would um, give you a result to tell you whether or not you have um, Penta. That's the, the one that, that is, was, it was this, this the Penta, the one um, that that has been so well studied, was pretty much the major chemical used from the early 80s until when it was banned in 2004. And it's it's a very problematic chemical. It was it was um, so, so you could there could be an inexpensive test for Penta like that. It hasn't been commercially developed, but it would be great if somebody did want to commercially develop that test. 
Interesting. As the listeners uh, of our show, regular listeners know, we have a new grandson, and uh, our daughter is breastfeeding him. I want to talk a little bit about that exposure. Um, I know that, uh, am I correct that even if you go and change your furniture, you've already, you've got that body burden with you, right? And, and that, that's the concern in, 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 uh, in breast milk is that we've got a, a buildup of chemicals that are, that are there. Yeah, but it's well shown that breastfeeding is way better in spite of the chemicals, that it's very protective. Uh, But one of the groups we work with is Moms Making Our Milk Safe. And, um, you know, the goal is is to to get the chemicals out of breast milk. And and I have to say, flame retardants are the the major chemical in breast milk, and they're in these home uses where where they're not really useful. You know, so so by the way, I, I really believe that instead of banning chemicals, which is very hard because when you ban a chemical, you often move you to know, from one, one toxic chemical yeah. to the next. Exactly. Chrominated like tris to chlorinated tris. Right. It happens over and over. Penta to chlorinated tris. Right. Instead, you have to say, do we need it? Right. And I think most of the bad chemicals we don't need. Like, we don't need penta and tris in our furniture with no data to show that they even save lives. Um, you know, the fluorocarbons, the stain repellents. Uh, you know, if you say to a mom, well, you can have a stain repellent on your um, rug, but your baby's going to have it in their body for the rest of their life, and it's a bad chemical, what would they choose? With, so I, I, th- I think if consumers had full information, they could make choices, and that really were these persistent bioaccumulative toxic chemicals um, there aren't that many of them. You know, I, so a lot of people go, there's so many chemicals, what can I do? I think that actually there's a small number of very problematic chemicals, and those are the ones that stay in our bodies for years or decades. And most of the uses, we don't need them. And that that's a very simple solution. So instead of trying to ban any of these chemicals, I would say, let's ask, why do we have a flammability standard for foam that doesn't do anything for fires? Anyway, so that, that's my goal, yeah. and for safer breast milk is to really try to reduce the use of these unneeded toxic chemicals, and, and probably don't have time to talk about it all today, but right. there really are just a, a handful of classes, and, and I'm very optimistic that um, if people are, are well-informed, they, they can reduce their exposure to that handful and, and, and then really have breast milk without toxins and not have toxins in their dust. I, you know, I agree 100%. I mean, I'm working, um, you know, on the Governor's Advisory Council for Green Procurement and Sustainability here in New York State, and we are actually using that EPA-generated um, PBT list, the Persistent Bioaccumulative Toxins list, um, as um, as a, uh, a, a part of a list um, of um, avoidable or chemicals of avoidance um, when New York State is purchasing uh, items and products. Uh, and you're right, it's not a long list. And it, you know, it, it certainly can be incorporated. And if anybody wants to go to that, you can look up, in, uh, look up the EPA site and look for their, um, their list of PBTs, persistent bioaccumulative toxins, and get an idea um, from there exactly um, what chemicals we're talking about. Um, you know, they're pretty much all organohalogens, that class we're talking about. Right, right. The, there have been 19 chemicals banned by the Stockholm Convention as PBTs. Mm-hmm. They're all organohalogens. Yep. I'm not sure if all your list is. but So it's pretty much, I think it's sensible to say, okay, so 
this one class, organohalogens, you know, it's got the worst chemicals in it. I don't know of any organohalogens that aren't either persistent, bioaccumulative, or toxic. Most are all three. So do we want to put them in products where we have intimate contact every day, especially if there's no good reason? Exactly. Well, I mean, you're just, that's, that's it right there. They don't necessarily work. They're, they're not, they don't necessarily do, necessarily do the job that, um, that, they were, that they're supposed to do. Um, I, you know, you talked a little bit about children on, you know, on a carpet um, that contains this chemical. Um, how about your cat, um, Midnight? Uh, let's talk about animals and their exposures as well. I mean, animals can't wash their hands uh, as as frequently as as we can. Although some of us may oh, wash our or they wash their hands when, by licking at them. Well, actually, do you want to be corrected about carpets? That wasn't quite accurate. Or should sure. we admit your choice? Um, no, I'd like. To, I mean, I'm carpets that um, I <laughs> assume that carpets the foam padding in the carpet oh, under yeah, the ca- right. That yeah, exactly. Right. So the carpets I was talking about the fluorinated chemicals which are used to stain repellents. Correct. Which are the most persistent. PFOAs. Right. The other big problem in your home there are really three right. areas with this foam that is uh, treated with with the toxic flame retardants and it's baby products furniture and then unfortunately the recycled carpet uh, cushion under the carpet. And that's mm-hmm. So you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so who is on the floor a lot? Babies and cats. Mm-hmm. And cats lick their fur. And so consequently, cats have a dose of these um, organohalogen flame retardants that can be 100, 1,000 times higher than humans. Um, so meanwhile, a new epidemic has arisen among cats of hyperthyroid disease. And in my school, they told him he would never see a case um, during his career as a veterinarian, that it didn't exist in cats. And now his practice here in California sees um, several new cases a week. It's, it's an epidemic. And so when my cat Midnight went from being a happy 15-pound cat to a miserable 5-pound cat, um, she was diagnosed with hyperthyroid disease, and, and my vet told me he never, you know, he thought it was a new chemical. This was just this new mysterious epidemic and I realized that PENTA, the chemical that we've been talking about that causes, you know, the neurological and reproductive problems, uh, is a thyroid. Uh, it looks just like thyroxin. So it impacts the thyroid in mice, rats, kestrels, frogs, and I suspected that it might be contributing to midnight's illness. So then actually my vet got me in a veterinary epidemiology study where we took samples of the dust from my house and midnight's blood and sent them off to this vet in Illinois who called me and said, your dust and your cat are the highest we've ever seen. It's off the scale. And, you know, that's because I live in California. But I also had the misfortune that every piece of furniture in my house was full of penta and very old. So uh, that's why I'm so interested in um, my daughter's and my level, because we're probably very high. Anyway, Midnight died um, about a year ago, and, um, you know, she's been a kind of an inspiration because I, I feel such sadness for all the animals with such high levels of these chemicals. You know, marine mammals have enormously high levels, and uh, a lot of um, scientists who study marine mammals think, you know, we could almost lose some species due to the high levels of flame retardants. Um, that they pretty much have the highest because all this stuff washes into the ocean and then it goes up through a complex marine food chain. So by the time you reach killer whales or, um, you know, seals, 
extremely sea turtles. high levels. And cats. Yeah. Right. So those are the highest. So hyperthyroidism is what you're talking about. In cats. So Hyper, it, uh, right. Yeah, but different, there are different thyroid conditions in different animals um, because it, it has a lot of different effects. And it hasn't been proven that there is a connection. It's very, very hard to prove these sorts of connections. Sure. We, um, we, we just know that cats have very, very high levels of something that is a thyroid agent, and we know they have this new epidemic, and we're hoping the scientists will be able to do good enough work to prove whether or not there's a connection. We, we don't know. Right. Um, you, you mentioned when you were talking about uh, your, your own home that you, that you had a lot of furniture in the home, that you probably had this penta in it, but that also that the, that the furniture might be old. So is it, does it actually come out of um, disintegrating foam more readily? Well, that's what I thought. I mean, I originally, in fact, if people want to send me an email, I have a fact sheet, or it's on our website. Um, they go to our website. I have a fact sheet on how to reduce um, the toxic flame retardants in your home. Mm-hmm. So that's greensciencepolicy.org, if, if anybody just yeah, turned let's, on. Let's just um, make so I have a fact sheet right. about that. But it, it, my fact sheet used to say that if you're foam, sometimes people with expensive furniture, there's a little bit of foam, and it's all wrapped with down and muslin and you know it's way down in the furniture mm-hmm. um, while my furniture was old and it was inexpensive so the foam was right up against the zipper and the zipper was broken in a place you know you could almost see it crumbling sure. and so I really thought that it made a difference if the foam was well protected but um, a, a distinguished environmental engineer who studies indoor air a professor at UC Berkeley Bill Nazaroff said that wasn't accurate, that um, even when it's all wrapped and everything, it just comes out because of it's being semi-volatile. So, so it doesn't um, matter. So that's, that's actually good to know, so that the expensive furniture that, you know, like you say, is uh, might have a foam core and then has, you know, a layer of down and it's covered in a, a very dense, uh, <clears throat> dense fabric <clears throat> like muslin, um, and then the outside covering or the, uh, you know, the... Um, the furniture, the fabric, uh, designer fabrics or whatever. It doesn't, doesn't really make a difference because it just volatilizes no matter what. Yeah, that's what he said. I mean, intuitively, you'd think my cheap old furniture that was gray and crumbly right. was worse. But the fact was I had an extraordinary high level, but everything, I was just very unlucky. Every single piece of furniture in my house had high levels of Penta in it, and it was from the 80s. I started my furniture from grad school. Right. So, you right. know, having had so many years of this furniture... And it also, this is really sad, it forms thin films on the walls. It, it's like, um, so even though I've gotten rid of my furniture two years ago, there's, like my level was 90 parts per million in my dust, and now two years later I'm down to four parts per million, which is the average in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And according to this same professor, it's because I have thin films on my walls, which it creeps me out, but I don't know what to do about it. Mm-hmm. can't move into a new house. Right. So, and you um, can't wash your walls down? He said washing and painting don't matter, that it's sort of down in the, sadly enough. But I'm working on it. I keep the windows and doors open. You know. <laughs> we're, I have we're, a lot of trouble figuring out how to buy new furniture, too, because I can't legally buy new furniture in California. Um, and I, I actually went to buy new furniture up in Seattle and discovered that it, the Northwest has the same furniture distribution chain as California. So pretty much all the furniture along the West Coast has these chemicals. Let me just talk quickly because, you know, we, we normally have a, a, a listener call in time, but there, you just have so much information to give that we're not going to have time to do that today. But let me just talk about the, um, the flame retardancy uh, of wool. 
uh, because I think a lot of people are buying organic mattresses and organic furniture, and actually they're filled with wool, and that is is adequate for flame retardancy material? Well, first of all, there's no evidence that putting the chemicals in the furniture does anything for flame retardancy. Right. And no one in the world uses it except the U.S. So like IKEA, they sell non-treated furniture all over the world except to the U.S. So I don't know, you know, that there's any data to show there's any need for flame retardants in furniture, particularly according to the standard the federal standard that's moving forward that would require the fabric to resist cigarettes, I, I think, is a good standard. Uh, so this requirement for the chemicals do, does not help. And I, I just want to say a word about, about mattresses. I mean, there are lots of good reasons for organic mattresses, um, but the flame retardants is not one of them. Um, the foam in mattresses does not contain these chemicals. It's okay. only the foam in furniture and baby products. Now, I can't promise that, but the foam industry and the mattress industry say that, and, the, and, and it seems true because this is, this is a peculiar thing, but the furniture flammability standard is a 12-second standard for foam, which is met by the chemicals. The mattress flammability standard is a very severe 30-minute standard with a maximum heat release in 30 minutes, and it, the chemicals would have no impact. So the mattress standard is met by putting a um, polymer fire retardant barrier all around the foam. Um, and that polymer barrier is really stops fires as opposed to these chemicals, which don't do very much. And very so um, I, I just hear on the radio all the time the organic mattress industry advertising how to, you avoid all these helpful, harmful flame retardants. And I'm not to say there aren't bad things in mattresses and it's not good to have organic mattresses, but the flame retardants are not in the foam, um, to the best of my knowledge. Right. So you can really do more for your family's health by just churning over the center cushion and not buying a couch that says it meets the California Bureau of Home Furnishing standard. Um, you can reduce the flame retardant level much more than, than by buying an organic mattress, which is highly unlikely to contain the flame retardants anyhow. Great. All right. Does that make sense? Yes, it abs absolutely makes sense, at least to me. I'm, I'm thrilled to have this information. Um, let's just go back really quickly because, you know, a lot of people think that furniture from Ikea is safe um, because it's made in, in Sweden and they, you know, they don't use these flame retardant chemicals, but you're telling me that they actually do use them um, in the United States for furniture that, that they're importing. I've, I've had a two-year correspondence with Ikea. IKEA? requesting that they only use the chemicals in California as opposed to using them in all 50 states in Canada. But their distribution chain is such that that's hard for them to do. And they're looking hard to find a safe flame retardant, but I don't think they've found one yet. So, so do uh, we they have... may have changed, but the last I knew they were using chlorinated tris in 50 states in Canada. So what do we tell young um, newlyweds or newly married people who are furnishing their homes? And do we, do we have um, manufacturers that you can recommend that do not Just use Just look up, turn over the cushion. Anything that's all you have to made do. in New York should be fine. Anything that's made... Um, you know, it's interesting. The levels of this penta are the lowest in the Northeast for the whole U.S. They're the highest in the West in, in terms of human body. So there's, there's, there um, there, there's studies of what's in people. The government that does Center for Disease Control does the NHANES. 
And mm-hmm. so the very lowest levels are in the Northeast. So that means there's lots of furniture available that does not have the chemicals. I don't know all the brands you have, but in a way, um, you have a label. You have that California furniture label. And if right. everybody knew about that label and just chose to buy products without the label, I bet manufacturers would figure out that they could make a different product in California and and not put the chemicals in in the other 49 states. And that would be very, very good for everyone's health and would put pressure on California, you know, to withstand um, the millions of lobbying dollars spent by the um, three companies that make the flame retardants. It's only three companies, and that's why I'm I'm optimistic that those three companies uh, would feel some pressure and move to safer chemicals. You know, they could, you'd think after 30 years, do better than replace this highly toxic Penta with the tryst from kids' pajamas. In 30 years, they could come up with a flame retardant that was not an organohalogen, but they need pressure from consumers. You would certainly think that would be the case. You've been listening to Green Street, and our guest has been Dr. Arlene Blum, founder and executive director of the Green Science Policy Institute. And that's going to do it for this edition of Green Street. Thanks for listening. Green Street Radio is a production of Grassroots Environmental Education. Learn more about us and our programs at www.grassrootsinfo.org or follow us on Facebook at Grassroots Info and on Twitter at Grassroots E-N-V-E-D.